every effort to restitute art is an uphill battle. If you are undertaking this journey, it's liable to be very expensive, it's liable to be very difficult, and it's liable to only be partially successful. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Eric Barco, Director of Investigations with the Massa Art Restitution Project. In the following conversation, Mr. Barco shares how the project began and the many challenges and achievements he has faced in his efforts to locate and reclaim the art collection taken from the Massa family by the Third Reich. Eric Bartko, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. As Director of Investigations with the Mossy Art Restitution Project, would you give an overview of how the project began and its restitution work? Certainly. Uh, and I'll just start by first saying I'm the Director of Investigations at a law firm by the name of Bartko Zankel uh, Bunzel. And the Mossy Art Restitution Project came about when a client came to the law firm uh, by the name of Roger Strout, who is the chairman of the Mo- uh, Mossy Foundation. And the Mossy Foundation is one of the heirs. Um, it, the If you start with the story of the Mossy family, um, they were probably one of the most prominent, or not even probably, certainly one of the most prominent um, publishing firms in Europe uh, around the turn of the century, and from about the 1880s through um, the, about 1933, when they were expropriated by the Third Reich. Um, Rudolf Mossy, the patriarch, who died in 1920, had built the publishing empire on pioneering um, the ability to go in any city anywhere in Europe and place a paper advertisement in a newspaper to appear in whatever city you wanted it to appear in. So this, of course, takes advantage of the telegraph and all those, those technological changes that came about across that period of time. But rather than having to go to just to your local paper to publish your ad in that town and actually having to physically go somewhere else to do it, he created a network whereby uh, you could go into any Mossy publishing office, place your ad and pay for it, and have it appear wherever you wanted it to in Europe. What happened is Rudolf Mossy passed away in 1920, and his his will gave his art collection, which he'd been busy putting together and actually had indeed built an entire building for in downtown Berlin to showcase it, which was known as the Mossy Palais by him, known as the Mosseum, uh, you know, a, 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 the Mossy Museum, um, shortened by the public uh, and where he routinely let the public in to see the art. Uh, and held, you know, international events there. Um, he, uh, you know, the the family also kept a castle outside of Berlin, Castle Schenkendorf, and a townhouse uh, inside Berlin, where his sole heir, which was his daughter Felicia, Lock, Felicia Mossy, who was um, his daughter out of wedlock uh, and adopted. 
was his soul and lived with her husband, Hans Lachman. And being in the turn of the century and she being the one with the publishing empire and the art collection, Hans Lachman became Hans Lachman Mosse. So Roger Strauch is the step step grandson of Hans Lachman. But he is an entrepreneur in California, uh, and he came to our office um, along about uh, so a couple, about a year and a half, two years, I guess 20, 2011, um, with a sort of a, he had a sense of the change in people's thoughts about the restitution of art to Jews who had been uh, maligned by the Third Reich and expropriated of their goods. It had not been that many years earlier that there had been the Swiss gold settlement um, uh, regarding all of the lost insurance policies uh, and the literal gold taken out of people's bodies uh, or taken from their personal possessions when they arrived at camps that had wound up in Switzerland. Um, the you know that event uh, cast more uh, interest into the restitution of art. Um, you may recall mostly because of a recent film, The Lady in Gold, uh, that that particular restitution, which went on for a great deal of you know took years to occur, and the Austrians held uh, a, a arbitration during which. It turned out they decided to give the paintings back, which was quite famous. Um, you know, there were so several events that occurred in the restitution world that sort of brought back to his thought process. You know, wow, my uncle George Mossy, who was a professor at the University of Wisconsin, spent years and years and years chasing down um, Property, real property, as in real estate, uh, that had been also been expropriated as part of the entire expropriation in both West Germany and after the reunification of Germany uh, in East Germany. And interestingly enough, the Mossy Palais was in the dead zone between the two the walls. And so it had never been, you know, post-war, while they sought the restitution of real estate in West Germany. And West Berlin, the Mossy Palais was not available for restitution until after the reunification of Germany. An interesting individual who was associated with the continued theft or continued shuttling of art that was ripped off or expropriated, stolen, however you want to, whatever phrase you would like to use to describe it, the, um, the art world and Museum world likes the word expropriation because it doesn't really touch on the criminality of the event. Uh, I prefer the word theft because that's what it was. The uh, man by the name of Carl Haberstock, who had been was very was one of the few art dealers before and during the war who were able to deal in art both inside Germany and outside Germany, whether it was occupied territory or allied territory. Uh, he was from Munich, and there's a great big fancy art bequeathal to the museums of 
Munich in the name of Carl Haberstock and his wife. It continues to this day. Was that part of what you were doing was going through something like Haberstock's bequeathal and confirming that there was nothing from the Mossy collection? I am relatively certain that there is no Mossy art in that bequeathal. Uh, I know of other expropriated Jewish families who remain, who are active in the effort to reclaim and have art that was expropriated from them restituted who are engaged in active disagreements with the scholar who is in charge of making sure that bequeathal to the city museums of the city of Munich does not have Nazi looting art in it. So, you know, there, I know that that scholar would claim that the collection is totally clean, and I know other families of Jewish descent engaged in uh, the seeking restitution of art who would say they were full of it. The, the story of how Carl Haberstock pops to the forefront probably starts with uh, the Lepke and Union auctions that were held in Berlin in 1934. And the family was aware that these auctions had taken place. And when they came to us seeking to put together a project to both look for and identify art that had been part of the Mossy Art Collection and then seek to restitute it, um, they understood that the record of these, you know, the catalogs on these auctions were a significant record of what had been expropriated and sold. The, the auctions were exclusively of Mossy goods, uh, and they were the liquidation uh, of the contents of the Mossy Palais and the Mossy Townhouse uh, in Berlin. The Lepke, the Lepke auction being the Mossy Palais and the Union auction being the townhouse. As long as you trust the German records, and it's, there's no reason not to, um, the two dwellings were both itemized and then cataloged and auctioned separately. Um, the expropriation of the Mossi family uh, took place in on April 8th of 1933, though. And for historical context, it's important to remember that Adolf Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany on January 31st. Yeah, so he didn't waste any time. <laughs> yeah, two months. In March, didn't they stop the printing of some of the publications? Yeah, so the, 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 Mossy, um, the Mossy Publishing House was a significant publishing endeavor. Uh, and part of it was a newspaper known as the Berliner Tageblatt. It is not the sum total of the Mossy Publishing House by any means. It's just a paper that they had, but it happened to be a very famous paper. And Mr. Adolf Hitler did not like the Berliner Tageblatt. Um, I believe I, I think I provided you with a, a series of quotes from speeches he gave before he became chancellor, where he mentioned either the Berliner Tageblatt the Mossy family or uh, the Jewish press in a highly negative light. Uh, and so it, it's really, you know, when you look at that and his public statements before he became chancellor, it isn't so shocking that the Mossy family was expropriated essentially 
two months and eight days after he became chancellor. Uh, and one of the interesting things about the expropriation uh, is that well, everyone remembers later in the war, uh, and you know, at the end of the war, that the Nazis would just take things left and right without any due process whatsoever. The ability for them to do that inside the government of the Third Reich did not occur and did not begin to occur until 1935. And between 1935 and 1937, what are known as the Nuremberg Laws, these were a set of laws published, or no, not just you know, put together by the Third Reich to enable them to do whatever they wanted to to members of the population who were deemed to be of Jewish descent. They could take your house, they could take your clothing, they could throw you in jail, they could... Any of these things they could do with impunity because it was legal after the Nuremberg Laws were passed. In 1933, there were no laws to enable Hitler to do such, even though he was chancellor. Uh, he became chancellor, and he still had the laws of the preceding government. And they did not allow um, Jews to be treated in whatever way you felt like. They were They remained citizens, how, however much there was noise in the public and brown shirts were cat maligning them left and right, they were still, they had, they maintained legal rights during the early part of the Third Reich. And so the, the expropriation of the Mossy family is interesting because of the legal machinations that were put together to enable it. They had to do it in a way that worked under their own legal system because they hadn't changed it yet. And is that where the rumor of the the Mossy bankruptcy arose? Well, there, so this is 1933. So between 19, the market crash in 2029 and 1933, the entire world wasn't going well. Uh, and, and it would be... You know, it, it would be a specious argument to say that the Mossy Publishing Company had suffered no um, economic difficulties during a period of massive contraction around the entire world. It did. However, the Mossy Publishing House continued to operate at a profit outside of Germany from the period of the expropriation into the middle of the 50s. So... Um, I don't know. I, that's, you know, if, <laughs> if it was able to operate outside of Germany at a profit until the middle of the 50s, I don't know why they would have declared bankruptcy in, inside Germany um, for any reason. The other interesting aspect of that is the records of the, the foundation to which the Mossy Publishing House was deeded at the point at the at, at the end of a pistol by Hans Lachman Mossy did declare bankruptcy. So uh, Hans Lachman Mossy signed over the whole whole all of the goods of the company inside the physical realm of Germany to a foundation that was affronted uh, on behalf of Gehring. 
uh, and it declared bankruptcy letter. And then they sold the artworks and they sold all the content of the property and also the properties. There is no record in Germany, in the courthouses anywhere, of Hans Lachmann Mossy, the, the party from whom the company would have been expropriated, the Jewish family that owned the company. There's no record of them ever declaring bankruptcy anywhere. There is record of the foundation to which they were forced to deed their worldly goods applying going through bankruptcy. Um, there is, uh, in the nature of history and primary and secondary resources, the premier work on the history of the Mossy family includes the statement that Hans Lachman Mossy took the company through bankruptcy. Uh, it does not provide a footnote to any primary resource, and it does not provide any ability to locate those papers anywhere. And we went to the court itself, and those papers do not exist. Um, so preponderance of evidence says Hans Blackman Mossing never declared bankruptcy of the Mossy Publishing Company, but it was the foundation, which was the vehicle by which the family was expropriated by the Nazis, that did so, and that history is somewhat confused on that point. So that confusion, does that link to issues with restitution in the current era because people at the time of the 1934 auctions would allegedly not have had any clue that this was Nazi looted property? So in 1934, nobody would have been under the illusion that Hans Blackman Lossie had de declared bankruptcy because it wasn't in the papers. Uh, and everybody knew that it was a, a foundation run by the German government that had declared bankruptcy for the company. Uh, if you had any ability to, if you were a newspaper reader, you never would have seen a declaration of bankruptcy by the former owner of the company. Uh, and you would know that the company was being run by a vehicle run by the German state. So there's that. Let's put that to the left. Later on in history, say like the late 80s, the early 90s, 2000s, if you were a, um, a museum either looking at the gift of or considering purchasing a piece of artwork and you felt compelled to research its provenance, and you discovered that it had been part of the Mossy art collection, you would then have gone to the history of the Mossy family written by Elizabeth Krauss, and you would have gone, well, they declared bankruptcy, so it wasn't their property, and there isn't any reason for us not to buy it. But the wrinkle to that that I've been curious about is that you know, the Monuments Men, when they came into these areas, they created military laws. And one of them says any transactions from 19, January 1933 forward are considered suspect. Uh, so this should fall within that and should have created those questions. Yeah, but if, but if you were if you were asking that question, 
And what you did would then do is turn to the definitive history of the Mossy family before World War II through, I think it goes through the 50s or something. But the um, very noteworthy historian who wrote it, uh, very well respected in Germany. Uh, and at the end of the day, you want to buy the piece of art. You don't want to discover that you can't buy the piece of art. And rather than doing very expensive research and primary source research, which actually, honestly, if you'd been, if you'd really wanted to know, you could have paid a paralegal about 500 bucks to go to the courthouse in Berlin and look for the bankruptcy papers. And you know what? Nobody ever did. Is that historical error still creating problems for the Mossy Art Restitution Project now? Uh, not since I demonstrated that it could not possibly have been a straightforward and fair bankruptcy of any nature. And beyond that, now that the Mari Project has gone and done the research in the actual courthouse, there is no record of Hans Blackman Mossy declaring bankruptcy. Uh, and at this point, we've engaged in over 30 restitutions um, and in, well into several millions of dollars that have been distributed amongst the heirs. I think for the purposes of people who are interested in the topic, rather than going through individual museums and who took a long time and who took a short time, it's more enlightening to think about what the Washington principles are. They are a non-binding element of the settlement regarding the Nazi looted gold in Switzerland. Um, the signatories to the Washington principles purport they will follow in regard to Nazi looted art. They talk about things like museums should research their own collections. The information about that research should be publicly available to Jewish families seeking to do research on their families and their art collections. The institutions should attempt to make um, meaningful restitutions to parties who demonstrate that they indeed are the appropriate um, heirs of artwork, which is now appearing in other places. Um, and so that enabled you to not be blown off, but it still was an uphill battle? Exactly. What happened at that point is we had to demonstrate to the museums that they indeed possess Nazi looted art and that indeed uh, the appropriate thing under the Washington principles was to restitute it. Um, and that was, took longer and shorter depending on the individual institutions. Um, there are a number of signatories to the Washington Principles who some are more amenable to restitution and some are less. And some countries have gone first go one direction for several years and then go back the other direction for several years. And currently the Dutch would be a good example of that. Um, the, the, you know, the political winds
in any country wherein the Washington Principles are a non-binding set of suggestions comes down to whether the country feels like restituting that year or not. Uh, Fortunately, in Germany, the Germans made it binding upon their public institutions. Uh, And largely their private institutions, by way of peer pressure, are largely open to restitution. Um, Private individuals in any part of the world, anywhere, is a complete and total toss-up. We have everything from, experienced everything from individuals who wrote to us because they believed they had a mossy artifact and then sought to reach an agreement with us regarding a restitution to individuals with whom we've sought contact with, who we know have not saluted art, who are what one could only describe as amongst the upper 2% of wealthy individuals on the planet, who won't even return mail. Would the owner of the bronze fountain that had been at the Mossy Palais fall within that category? No. But they would fall within a category that's not been willing to return the looted object? So, they just write nasty letters. Would you tell a little bit about the Dancing Maidens of Berlin? Um... Berg Schlitz is a property um, outside of Berlin. Uh, it's like a six-hour drive or something. It's about driving distance. But Berg Schlitz opens up this interesting pan of German history and the Nazis and, and banking in Germany. And um, there are some excellent books on banking in Germany, uh, one of which is... Uh, and the, the Nazi dictatorship and the Deutsche Bank. And one of the individuals who was a tremendous and important player in the German banking world from the 1880s on is a man by Emil Jörg von Staus. And Emil Jörg von Staus um, never became a member of the Nazi party, but he was the political social connection and sort of intermediary between Deutsche Bank and the Nazi party. And they funded a significant amount of that investment in infrastructure uh, and the ability and the ability to reconstitute re- the German industrial machine. Uh, and they helped finance it. And Emil Jörg von Staus is also interesting because he was a fan of Wilhelm Schott. Uh, and Wilhelm Schott is the creator of Three Dancing Maidens. Uh, and it is a bronze casting uh, fountain on a, on a marble base, which was made specifically uh, at the behest of Rudolf Mossy, who paid Wilhelm Schott to create it. 
and in the course of Wilhelm Schott's efforts to create this fountain, <laughs> he built several quarter-sized replicas. Uh, and Emil George von Staus is a, was an owner of one of the pipe-sized versions of it, and it was in his garden in Berlin. And when the 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 Schott fountain, this is Walter Schott fountain, was finished, it became the sort of frontispiece to the entrance gateway to the Mossy Palais in Berlin. And one of the interesting things about the Mossy Palais is where it was. Um, the Mossy Palais was basically kitty corner to the chancellorship office. Uh, Adolf Hitler could, would have been able to see from a window on any given floor, you know, any floor of about the fourth story, the Mossy Palais from the building in which his offices were. Uh, the uh, the Brandenburg Gate, which is also right in that neighborhood, is a whole five city blocks from the Mossy Palais. Now, where where uh, their version of the Congress meets is maybe eight blocks from there. Um, the you know, the, the Mossy Palais was central to this bustling and important both artistic and industrial section of Berlin. Kitty Corner to the Mossy Palais was the largest farm, pharmacy firm in Berlin. Um, the <coughs> Anyway, so email has this pint-sized version of the three the, the maidens or the nymph and Brennan. And Rudolf Mossy has the original. Uh, and there are other castings made of both the pint-sized version uh, and the full-size original. And um, those castings are about the world now. Uh, and one of them uh, is in New York City. And it's a full-size repl casting replica. And another one uh, is just south of San Francisco uh, in uh, City Right. I'm not going to get the city right now, but it's just south of San Francisco, and you can go see it. And there are castings of the original. And as we know, Emil George von Staus, back in the days when the original was made, he had a pint-sized version of it because he really liked Shouts Fountain. And the, the, the Mossy family is expropriated. And one of the earliest events that occurs is that in um, August of 1933. So they're expropriated in April right, of 1933. And then long later, the sort of end of the summer, uh, an inventory of the Mossy Palais is made. One of the interesting uh, aspects of that fountain is that it was, you know, it was the frontispiece to the to the gateway to the Mossy Palais, which was quite significant. And you can find pictures of it online, actually, if you look at Mossy Palais. Um, and it, it had this incredible, you know, the, it was 
really quite impressive. It, it was destroyed, unfortunately, during the war, the entire building, uh, and it's been rebuilt since, but not as a replica, but rather just as another building known as the Mosse Palais. So the fountain's out front. Emil George von Staus is aware of who the artist is. He knows the Mosse family has been expropriated, and he knows that he is the political social connection between the Nazi party, as in Adolf Hitler and Hermann Goering and Goebbels and the, the, the men who are tight with Hitler, who Hitler brings on board first to make the Third Reich happen. And he knows the Mossy family has been expropriated early in April 1933, not two months after Hitler becomes chancellor. And he knows that the Nazis can't do anything without the ability to borrow money to reconstitute industrial Germany and deliver on their populist promises to the German populace. There are no direct records that we've ever discovered, like, say, a letter he wrote to somebody saying, I went and I took the Walter Schott fountain from the Mossy Ballet. That doesn't exist. Uh, we don't have anything like that. What we do have uh, is a local historian in uh, Bergschlitz, where the where that where the Nymphenbrunnen now exists, and I'm going to explain to you why I know that that is the original Nymphenbrunnen of which Rudolf Mossy was uh, pur purchased from Walter Schott and paid for it to be made as an original. I'll explain that to you in a second. But the the local historian there spoke with before his death a local forester who was part of the crew who went by wagon to Berlin in 1933 to retrieve the fountain and bring it back to the Bergschlitz property, which is now the Bergschlitz Hotel, and deposit it on the grounds. And they picked it up from the home of a banker. And I was the, the the trip was made on behalf of a banker, and the fountain was picked up from the home of a publisher. These are part of an interview which was transcribed in Bergschlitz, and I believe sometime in this in this sixties uh, or seventies. And we, well, we we have that information, and beyond that, in terms of of. You know, that's a good lead. Well, well, maybe this is the statue that came from Berlin to Birchlitz, and maybe it is the Mossy Palais statue. But the Mossy Palais statue um, was damaged by the limb of a falling tree. And it broke the bronze casting. And the casting had to be welded back together. And so the original Nymphenbrunnen fountain, which is a bronze casting, is unique from other castings that were made of it on the basis of when those castings of it were made. You get, you get what I'm saying here? So that prior to the break, a full-size casting of it would have appeared identical to its original format, 
and post the break and fixing of it, any cast of it made would be identical to the fountain after it was repaired. But it would be a casting. It would not be the original statue with the repair. So that's how we, that's the basis on which we believe and have attested to the owners of Berg Schlitz um, that that's the right fountain. Now, the interesting thing about Berg Schlitz is that the reason I associate it with Emil George von Staus and Staus Love Shot and Staus had a three quarter size replica is that during the war, Emil George von Staus bought the Berg Schlitz property and it became his summer residence. In the same year in which the interview made by the historian in Berg Schlitz records the transfer of that fountain from the home of a publisher in Berlin to the Bergschlitz property, which at that point was Emil Jarg von Staus's summer residence until the end of the war. What are the responses of the current possessor of the property when presented with this information? I am assuming that they would say you need to test the fountain and we won't let you on the property to do that? Is that kind of issue come up? No, 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 no. It's better than that. The Masi Pala is in Leipziger Plaza. Then as now, it was kind of a central location. And then as now, there's an enormous pharmacy on the corner of the plaza, which you would have seen as a, look, would have looked like a great big multi-story um, shopping mall these days. But at the time, it was this pharmacy. And the first thing the, the hotel did after we contacted it was put up a story on their website about how the fountain had originated at this pharmacy. And that's where it had been. And it, that's an absolute hogwash. So that's the first thing they did. And we wrote them back and said, you're full of it. And they said... You know, there's no way to know, and we're not going to help you. Uh, and therein it basically lies. And that, that because the current owner of the hotel is a private citizen, um, they're not bound by the Washington principles anyway. So we have endeavored to convince the German government that because of the course of history wherein the fountain was looted, moved, by someone who was sort of a quasi-German government official and onto a property that belonged to him, which post-World War II was in East Germany, wherein it was um, taken by the state and used as a farming commune. Um, they, they had a responsibility to restitute the family. That, unfortunately, it's never gotten us anywhere. They don't feel quite that much guilt. Uh, we have never been able to leverage them into any position where they would take on a private citizen in Germany to confiscate and restitute a piece of art. We have not been successful with that. Uh, they have been willing to make him put up a plaque saying that it used to be part of the Mossy art collection. Oh, and they've done that? Well, that's an interesting question. I've never been there to see it with my own eyes. You didn't book a room at the hotel? <laughs> I have not booked a room at the hotel. 
The uh, as I so I had an interesting conversation not that long ago with an author who it was a a, a young Jew in uh, the Netherlands uh, during World War II, uh, and you know she wrote me this card when she sent me sent me her memoir and. I had told her the story of the hotel, and she's, that's just, that's, she's like, that scary hotel. <laughs> yeah, well, because the hotel, um, I, you know, the, the Nazi party had, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of any of the sort of weird religious connotations and different preachers slash priests who were associated with the Nazi party. Only from you. <laughs> okay, so well, this is a great research project for you, and uh, we've spoken about Wilhelm Ost before. And Wilhelm Ost is the guy who, on behalf of Goering, set up the um, foundation to which the Mossy expropriation was then deeded, and he's the one who was accused of making too great a profit on having acted on behalf of Goering and found himself on trial and for whom Garing was later a character witness. So, and he's the one that brought the revolver into uh threaten Hans Lockman. Wilhelm Ost is the one who sat there with a the revolver where, well, uh, Hans Lockman Moss signed over the company, the well, the Mossy publishing, uh, house to the, um, foundation or true hound um, that was the legal machinations that allowed the expropriation of the Mossy family. Yes. Anyway, so that, but let's get back to Berg Schlitz because this is fun. So I said that Berg Schlitz, I've never had the nerve to go there to see if this plaque exists. And I've been invited to go there. I actually was invited the last time I was Berlin in Berlin by this woman who who ostensibly is the heir of a family that at one point owned one of the bronze castings of the Nymphenbrunnen. And she's been on this crazy search to find every casting of the Nymphenbrunnen that ever was. Uh, and I turned it out. <laughs> but I do know from having sat and spoken with her and also from having spoken with the author of uh, The Lost Maidens of Berlin, who did indeed go to Bergschlitz and attempted to, attempted to, exactly, and attempted to interview the current owner. Uh, the, the place is covered in Nazi graffiti and swastikas and quasi-religious relics and... The Nazis used to convene there throughout the Third Reich, and there would be bonfires, and people didn't speak of it. Well, you know, and then the, this guy, Eric Hannison, was part of that sort of non-political, non-governmental aspect of Nazism. Uh, and he's not the only individual like that associated with Hitler and, and Nazism. Uh, you know, at the same level, this guy Hannison is, uh, you know, is a clairvoyant to Hitler. Carl uh, Haberstock was the man who knew about art to Hitler. 
and he was introduced actually by a slightly more fringe individual who was Hitler's first art contact. But Karl Harperstein was the real deal. He was a real art dealer prior to the war. And he is probably the source of the idea to confiscate the art, the Mossy art collection, because he was well aware of it and would have been to several showings of it and knew exactly what was in it. The reading on the nymph fountain that I had seen had included a reference, I think, to Haberstock, uh, some kind of handwritten comment on one of the auction catalogs that might have referred to the fountain, even though the fountain wasn't included officially in the catalog. Is that something that... Is- well, so the, so the fountain appears in... I don't know if you've ever seen it, and I can give you a copy. Have you ever read the introduction to the Lepke catalogs? No. I have an English translation of it, which is quite interesting. I'll share it. I'm happy to mail it to you. The fountain... So the- so the guy who makes the inventory of the Mossy Palais in August of 1933 is a man by the name of Hans Rosenhagen. And the man who writes the introduction to the Lepke catalog, which is the auction of the Mossy art goods and the contents of the Mossy Palais, which occurs in March of 1934, is also Hans Rosenhagen. And Hans Rosenhagen is associated with the Lepke auction house. Uh, and Hans Rosenhagen records the Walter Schott fountain in his inventory in 1933. And Hans Rosenhagen does not mention the Walter Schott fountain in the introduction to the Lepke catalog, or in, and nor is the fountain part of the Lepke catalog in 1934. And but you know, so we know, and it's not the only item, by the way, that appears in the um, appears in the inventory, but does not appear in the catalog. My first thought on that is that uh, these art dealers often took the cream of off the top of whatever they were looting um, for themselves. Is that something that happened here? Email George Wenzel. Yeah, that's that's the, that's the whole email jargon von Staus story. <laughs> if we if we go back to the story, how did this project start? And I and I we we got lot we've gone on several tangents off of. We found all these artwork that were in German museums, and then the Gerlitt thing happened, and so we had a way to talk to them all of a sudden. And what happened out of that is we started process of discussing restitutions and providing evidence and things like that. And really, you know, we've talked about this bankruptcy issue. And one of the first things, um, you know, one of the the major events uh, associated with, with us getting this to function was that even before Mari went and did the research at the, uh, at the courthouses in Germany and could not find any record of Hans Lachmann Mossy filing uh, an application for the bankruptcy of the Rudolf Mossy ha- uh, publishing company. We, I demonstrated basically through reviewing other expropriations that, that occurred early, wherein the German state undertook legal machinations to enable them to take over companies 
this is interesting. This happens in the air, aircraft industry. This happens in actually happens in the ammunitions business too. But the uh, this was not you know, taking over a company some way other than because you have laws that allow it occurred quite a bit very early on in during the Third Reich. Um, and so we demonstrated that, and especially you know saying, "No, look, look at Wilhelm Ost's relationship with Hermann Goering," and Wilhelm Ost became the head of the foundation. How can you possibly believe this went on appropriately and without any pressure of any type? Not to mention there's a lot of family records wherein a gun was held, you know, a pistol was placed on the table, and it was the signing over of the company for which they received passports to exit the country in exchange. And, you know, it's kind of hard when you look at the dates you know, even museum administrators who can see over incredible hurdles um, to enable the possession of art, they even had a hard time with that. <laughs> and and it was, you know, after the third protestation that Han Blockman had indeed filed for bankruptcy, with which we replied with alternative information and the request that they demonstrate to us that that was true. Most of these people would come around to, okay, well, maybe we need to discuss this in more detail. And uh, during this process, when I was in discussion, you know, ongoing letter writing back and forth, about 14 different museums, uh, one of them turned out to be um, the Egypt's Museum on Museum Island in Berlin. And this was because uh, we had written them about a, a, a sacrificial organ basin and an urn that had originated in Egypt and had come to Europe as part of one of the archaeological digs in Egypt that had been funded by Rudolf Mossing in the 1880s. And the interesting part of the Egypt Museum is that it is part of the Prussian Cultural Heritage Foundation. And the Prussian Cultural Heritage Foundation, which is known by the acronym SPK in Germany, is the largest museum entity in the country of Germany. And it runs approximately 50% of the museums in the country. And it also is a quasi-governmental organization. Um, the president of the SBK wields some degree of influence. Uh, and the SPK is funded um, significantly by, directly by the Federal Republic of Germany every year. And the origin of that is that, um, as you may recall, the Kaiser, uh, or in the, you know, sort of the crown and the king and the royalty associated with the kingdom of Germany, is actually associated with the Kingdom of Prussia. Uh, 
in World War One, and Kaiser is Prussia. And World War Two is the Third Reich of Germany, but Prussia is a big deal and always has been in terms of the political and military aspects of that region of Central Europe or Central Central West Europe, really, known as Germany. Uh, and at the end of World War II, part of the settlement, uh, part of the conditions, um, because it was unconditional surrender, part of the conditions laid down by the Allies were that no physical, real property in Germany would ever be known as Prussia again. Uh, and what the Germans have now is the SPK, or the Prussian Cultural Heritage Foundation. And and that's why it's a big deal. Um, and, you know, like I said, they're funded every year by the government. They run half the museums in Germany. And we had, I had mailed off this letter looking for a sacrificial urn and a, uh, uh, a uh, organ basin. <laughs> that had originated in Egypt because I knew he had run these archaeological digs there. <laughs> and um, there is a real restitution office, which is part of the SPK or the Prussian Cultural Heritage Foundation. And um, after having not heard anything from that letter, longer than any other museum to whom I had wrote, um, I received back not a tepid reply, but rather uh, a list of artworks that had belonged to the Mossy collection, uh, many of which I was wholly unaware. And the letter came to me from the Council for Restitution for the uh, Prussian Cultural Heritage Foundation, or the SPK. Uh, and that was, quote, on, you know, there were two major museums that were, you know, sort of a, you could flip a quarter upon which one was the first and most important restitution and which one was the second and most important restitution. But the other museum uh, is uh, the... Kunst, uh, it was in Kunsthalle Karlsruhe, uh, which is in south southwestern Germany. Um, they, the director of that museum, Pia Mueller, Mueller um, we had had a very interesting interaction regarding the painting I had made her aware of in her collection. Uh, and because they were so attached to that painting, she was willing to go knock on doors higher up in the German government in an effort to get a, an ear to listen to us. As one of many avenues which we attempted to make contact and make real, real connection with the German governments and get them to think we were a positive as opposed to a negative occurrence was I had had a former ambassador to German visit with uh, basically the right hand of Monica Grutter. She's the, she's the federal government commissioner for culture and the media. They often say it's arts, whatever, but they have these 
legislative positions that are about art that we just don't have in the United States. Um, and since there's been this sort of renewed effort in Germany and they keep appropriating money in the Bundestag and putting it towards restitution and investigation and research. But like I said, Pia Mueller uh, tank had gone and knocked on her door because I had told her, you know, I have to take this painting away from your museum and sell it at auction so the, the proceeds can be distributed to the heirs. But, you know, if you can help me get traction somewhere, maybe I can convince the heirs to do something different. Uh, she was so motivated to hang on to the painting, she went and pounded on a lot of doors. Monica Gratters was on a trip to the United States uh, for political purposes, just touring the country. And while they were on the West Coast, uh, uh, Miss Boneskin came and checked us out. It was they came to the conclusion that something could be done with us. Back in Germany, untouched by us, uh, and I think whether, you know, the degree of influence to which we contributed, I just couldn't tell you because we were not party to any of this. The German Bundestag went and took what had once been simply a small group associated with maintaining a website wherein Nazi looted art could be registered um, and posted, basically set aside funds, which they continue to set aside, to create an entire bureau to actually do many of the things that are encouraged by the Washington Principles. Uh, after the Washington Principles had come through originally, Germany had kind of stalled out on creating this uh, website wherein artwork could be listed. And some of it got restituted, some of it didn't, some stuff got found, not a whole lot went on. But uh, the, you know, without our direct contact or suggestions, but after having run into us and the effort which we were undertaking and the, the relative, uh, volume of our success all on our own without any aid inside German museums um, in conjunction or or in at least temporal conjunction with the Gerlitt affair and the public um, renewal of interest in Nazi looted art, the new German minister of culture, Monica Grutters, went and undertook um, the political effort to put together uh, a more significant um, effort to respond to the suggestions of the Washington principles than simply this group and this website. Um, so today, so if you were to type in lootedart.de, you would come to... Are you talking about Lost Art DE? Yes, I am. Thank you so much. That brings you to, um, to the, the, the German... That brings you to the, what used to be the homepage of um, the listing of looted art that they had undertaken after um, the... 
the publishing the Washington Principle. So if you go up in the right hand corner there, you'll see it's basically the 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 um, German Central Cultural Organization, uh, and this is the group uh, of which um, Monica Grutter's right hand, you know, sort of person who got things done for her is also high up in the echelon. She's number two in this group, or used to be, and may or may not no longer be. Um, but you can now go to the DZK, and you will find on their website, this did not used to exist, research funding. And you can go right to the page and go to research funding, and you can apply for and receive uh, project funding to research Nazi looted art or Nazi confiscated art. And then it'll be, they'll come down to the bar, say current events, research funding, databases, research, the foundation service. So databases is the lost art database, right? And there's actually two other ones on there now. But originally, the only thing for Nazi looted art was the lost art database. Post our interactions with the German government and their decision that they wanted to work in conjunction with us and the introduction of um, the president of the SPK, Herman Parzinger, um, we wound up in conversations with Professor Mikey Hoffman who is a member of the faculty at F Free University Berlin. One of the things that became an, an element of German art history post-World War II was the knowledge that Hitler had collected all of this art, and a great deal of it had just plain old vanished. Well, the interesting component of this and its relationship to the German state is that the art was collected by the Third Reich from German museums. And so, at least in a political, social fashion inside Germany, the it's a lot easier to sell the importance of looking for art that was taken from German museums to seek to either simply identify it and locate it and or perhaps find some of it to return to German museums. That's a much easier sell than we need to figure out why it's a good idea for us to take incredibly famous and sophisticated and interesting and expensive art and return it to Jews from whom it was stolen. No, but you know, there's just, just a lot. Of, I mean, you know, for the current, you know, it's just an easier sell. <laughs> so, and Mikey often is the person who did most, has done, has overseen that research for a long time now, uh, which is why her name came up when Miss um, Ponsgen was speaking with uh, Parzinger, who was the head of the SBK. And so it was, uh, I was introduced to her. Uh, and we, uh, we found, you know, she found a more, you know, quote unquote, I mean, the, the German university system is somewhat like the Americans and 
the British, but maybe maybe even more uptight than the British version of American academia. We had to find the senior research advisor and you know someone who it was just a name at the top of the list, that kind of thing. Um, but and I met with him, and you know I, we had to pass muster with each other. Um, and the but what came out of that is that the DZK provided funding to an academic research project hosted by Free University inside the academic group that was already hosted by Free University that worked on the Degenerate Art Project. And the sort of management element of that, of this project, Mare, is Mikey Huffman. Uh, and one of the different aspects of that project is that while we receive funding from the DZK, the Mossy Foundation has, from the very start, been an active financial contributor to the German academic event known as the Mossy Art Research Initiative which came together because of arm's length contacts between the Mossy Art Restitution Project, which I run, and the DZK, wherein um, we were introduced to Isabel Ponskin by P.M. Mueller-Tom of Kunstall Carl Rue who was close with Monica Grutters, who had become the Minister of Culture of Germany after the Gerlitt affair and followed in the footsteps of someone who'd held the position for 24 or 26 years. And given my reading of the tea leaves, had probably been appointed by Angela Merkel to solve the Nazi-looted art problem. Um, as she remains the Minister of Culture, that all these different elements converged uh, fortuitously. And, you, you know, Dad and several dashes of luck and good fortune here, uh, particularly in that everyone got along. Uh, and Mari uh, occurred. The DZK funding is renewed each year? At the moment, um, you know, the pandemic really isn't helping things, but we were in the midst of starting to figure out how to get it refunded for another round. So our initial funding from the DZK was for two years with an option for a third, and we, we did exercise the option for the third. And so we had come to the, you know, we'd come to the point at which we'd had um, private discussions, and, uh, but it was time to go through the formal process of you know, reapplying for funding uh, and see, you know, having the right political sponsors to make that occur and that kind of stuff. Uh, everybody wants to put it back together, and it would be really convenient to put it back together, and I still get different kinds of information from them. Um, but we are not officially refunded, and so none of the researchers have a paycheck. And so it's very difficult to convince people to actively do research if they're not getting paid. <laughs> the, the, Mari, the Mari website is www.mari-dash. 
P-O-R-T-A-L dot D-E. Uh, and it's the Mossy Art Research Initiative. And it its role is an academic role. They're about using the money to look for the art, find out where it is. They share with us where it is, but they're not going to help us get it back. Uh, and my role at this point is having overseen and orchestrated the initial finding of art, which led to restitutions, which led to connections in Germany, which led to the beginning, uh, you know, getting that, the Germans to bring Mari and Mikey Hoffman to the table as an idea of something we could be involved in together. Um, my role is now just, you know, when we find art to, to exercise the negotiation, per, you know, the, the reality, we've done this many times, you know, you hear the facts, here's the stuff, let's talk about it. How are we going to make this restitution occur? Uh, and we have been um, incredibly successful in convincing people to restitute art, uh, even though they don't want to. Um, and uh, I think a good example of our uh, the level of diligence and effort we put into it is that here in the United States, at the Arkell Museum in upstate New York, we restituted a painting um, known as Winter or Skater uh, by an American artist, which had been purchased in Berlin straight from the artist by Rudolf Mosse. It had a stamp on the back of it. Um, but when we initially contacted that museum about that piece of art, the director was perfectly happy to converse with us and, you know, the opening salvo of discussions was just fine. And then a trustee of the museum stepped in and told me that all, you know, all discussions were strictly with him and that she shouldn't be contacted directly ever again, period. And, but, you know, he was not very helpful. And eventually uh, that event caused me to network my way into a contact at the Northern District of New York in Albany, New York. Uh, and we wound up working with Christopher Moran of the um, Department of Justice. Uh, and the, uh, the outcome was that the Arkell Museum gave the painting to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation took it back to the Department of Justice. The court in the Northern District of New York determined that it was a civil forfeiture because it was stolen property. And the Department of Justice returned the painting to the Mossy family as the only applicant for its return. Uh, and, you know, the, the Arkell Museum just stopped talking to us and we got tired of not being spoken to. And um, they're not the only American museum we've had that problem with. And um, we don't think that's okay. And we don't treat it like it's okay. Uh, and while indeed litigation occurred during that event it was not brought by our project it wasn't the mossy art restitution project and the law firm of Bartko, um did not 
enter into litigation in an effort to retrieve Nazi looted art on behalf of the Mossy Heirs or the Mossy Foundation, what happened was we presented information to the Department of Justice of the United States of America, and they decided to seek civil forfeiture of the property because they determined on their own that they felt that it was stolen property and not legally held by the institution in whom in whose, that currently had physical possession of it, and they took it away from them. Arkell um, put its head in the sand, and we continued to try to work with them and get them to work with us because it had been a promising beginning for uh, a year and a half before we started the effort to involve the Department of Justice. And that took another 12 months, uh, which it may, and I, you know, the, the a, I guess a part of the interesting aspect of Nazi looted art is how long does it usually take to restitute a piece of art? And I would say the fastest I have ever pulled it off from notifying a museum and having them say, yes, you're correct, we have that piece of art is nine months. And I have several, you know, I have a couple pieces of art in Poland that have been, I've been that I were identified five years ago. Those are public public museums in Poland who's ostensibly a signatory to the Washington Principles. Um, we, they, they like to write circular letters. The, the museum will tell us we have to talk to the Federal Department of Art or, or you know, the Federal Minister of Culture, and then we'll write the Ministry of Culture, and they'll say it's entirely dependent on the individual museum, and then we'll write to the museum, and they'll say it's dependent on the Department of Culture. <laughs> <laughs> and thus it goes until you get bored writing letters. You, you know, they're this great. Poland is this great example of they love to restitute art into Poland. Uh, and actually, like, like I said, the FBI has indeed been involved with the restitution of art out of American museums before. And the reason I knew of that was they've restituted several pieces of art out of U.S. museums to Polish museums. And that was really the genesis of, you know, once I became so dramatically frustrated and certain that the Arkell Museum was really hanging on to this idea that, well, if we just don't respond to them long enough, maybe they'll just go away. Um, that was the genesis of the idea to approach the Northern District of New York uh, and, and seek their aid in helping the Arkell Museum see their way to more appropriate behavior. You have had issues with restituting pieces from Israel also, is that right? Uh, well, issues is that we have successfully restituted. Oh, have you? I thought you might have had an outstanding claim. In... I do currently have an outstanding claim in in in. Uh, so I would say this in Israel: we currently received an initial response from an Israeli museum saying, "Gosh, the tapestries that you asked about." don't appear to have been expropriated by the Nazis because they don't appear in the Lepke catalog. And uh, we responded with, gosh, 
we can understand how you might make that mistake. However, the Lepke catalog is not a forced sale as a reason for the restitution of art to the Mossy family. The expropriation of all Mossy property on April 8th by the Third Reich in the person of Wilhelm Osten on behalf of Hermann Goering, who acted at the orders of Adolf Hitler, is the actual expropriation date of all Mossy goods. As noted in the 1954 Berlin Higher Court decision of the highest allied court on restitution. Why don't you think about that? Well, I haven't gotten back to me yet. Uh, <laughs> you know, the other part of that was, and, uh, and oh, by the way, we know of other large format works that were not listed in the Lepke catalog that were indeed expropriated and gone other places. And then you can easily make the transition to, oh, yeah, that fountain he told me about, or... Oh, yeah, the Susanna statue, which I think I never finished the story of earlier. But, you know, that back when the SBK wrote me back this long list of things that belonged to the Mossies, of which I'd never heard, I was like, wow, this is great. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's part of how, you know, the, the SBK was doing the right thing and behaving correctly at the right time. We were looking for the art at the right time. The Gerland affair had embarrassed Germany at the right time. The National Minister of Culture of Germany had been, I think, is pretty clear. You can say Angela Merkel told her to go make things better because she had just received the appointment, was kind of in the same space. Her right-hand person was someone with whom... I interacted well and we, we were we were able to you know see eye to eye on many things and haven't had an urge to work together. Our legal counsel in Germany was well and personally connected with several of the involved players just in the course of having grown up and gone to college and items of that nature that are just that's just pure luck. You know that we had this in the the and beyond that my making the acquaintance of a former German-American ambassador to Germany who'd been part of putting together the, the Nazi gold settlement and had been involved in being an author of the Washington Principles. There's been an incredible amount of good fortune uh, that has occurred, but part of it is just we decided not to approach it from the aspect of a lawyer who wanted to be in the courtroom. We decided to approach it with the goal of success in the restitution of art rather than being in some courtroom somewhere winning some argument while getting paid. And that piece that started this dialogue was from the Southwest German Museum. What was the name of that piece, the painting that they wanted to keep? Yeah, so that that is... Um, Carl Blecken's Scholastica. Uh, and, you know, an interesting, you know, here's a, this is just shows you how closely related stuff is in the world of art, art history, restitution, museums. So 
this pain in Scholastica was a big deal to the director of the museum because it was a big deal to the director of the museum. She went and pounded on doors and made pleas to people high up in the German government to help her find a way to convince the heirs to purchase it. And I had told her, I said, we're going to take that thing and sell it because that's our fiduciary responsibility. If we can't, you know, there are three heirs and there's no way we can do anything except sell it for the highest value and divide by three. We're sort of stuck with that. And I said, but if you help, if you get us an ear, and real action, you know, someone who can provide real action, I will do my utmost to convince the heirs that they might find it in their personal interests to allow you to repurchase this piece of art and keep it in your museum. And that's what wound up happening. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. Um, yeah. <laughs> that one piece triggered all of this. Yeah. Mari is the first cooperative project between heirs and Germany that I know of. Is that right? So there are, so there's a, a Canadian group associated. It's a group of universities associated with one family that had been making efforts towards a similar event, which is part of how this idea grew up, but it's not the same as what we did. And that's the Max Stern project. Is that right? Yeah, and you can find all kinds of press releases about how pissed off they were with the Germans and how it wasn't, isn't, isn't, wasn't, won't yeah. work. How many, uh, or do you know, like, as far as where things stand now with the provenance research done by Mari, uh, how many pieces you have that you're still seeking within Germany? <laughs> no, well, you can't, you can't. You can't identify a country in which you're searching unless you're far enough down the trail. You've almost found it anyway. I mean, so the reality is we've restituted art from, and I'm going to back up and finish a story I broke off in the middle of it a second, but we've restituted art in Germany, Austria, Israel, the United States, and Switzerland, several pieces out of Switzerland. So, uh, if you, if you, you know, if you, I couldn't tell you which country, you know, that's five different countries. Um, all of, you know, the only country out of which we've only restituted a single piece or claiming a single piece is Austria. Uh, and, and, you know, if you were to be thinking from a historical perspective about the dispersal of artworks, you would probably assume Germany and Austria are the places you're going to find the most stuff, but we only found one thing in Austria. <laughs> we, we found five things in Israel. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. The, the, play, the stuff was so thoroughly dispersed after the war, you can't identify. I mean, to search on the basis of it being in a single country is, is virtually guaranteed um, not to work. You just have to follow the trail of each individual piece of art as best you can and figure out where it wound up. What about Russia? Have you come across um, any pieces that so far in your research you've found a link with? So, you know, we were there? talking about Poland earlier. Yeah. So that piece of art 
was restituted to Poland from the Soviet Socialist Republic. <laughs> from the trophy Before, commissions. What's that? Was it part of the trophy commissions? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, is there maybe other art in the Soviet Union or a former state that was part of the Soviet Union? Wouldn't surprise me, <laughs> but I haven't found any yet. <laughs> so. How many pieces... Um, total are you guys seeking from the inventories that were done of the townhouse and the palais well we're seeking all of it but not all not everything you know you, you can only pursue one thing at a time and you can you, you, what we do is we start with the best leads we have and pursue them until they die uh, and hopefully we reach a conclusion and then seek a restitution and that just doesn't happen all the time um, on the flip side of that coin, the winter skater from the Arkell Museum, we found not through a long-term diligent research project delving deep into the archives in Berlin and other countries or places like the Haberstock archives in, in um, Munich, but because the Arkell Museum on their... Um, uh, let's see what what is the website that everybody belongs to Facebook. Facebook maybe. They, <laughs> you know, we found that was found because the museum director was trying to drum up visits for the holiday season and posted it online, and someone it wound up in somebody's Facebook feed in Germany who was a researcher for Mari. And was there one other story that you'd said you'd started, but you wanted to go back to? So the Scholastica painting, Kunsthalle Karlsruhe. Tessa Rosebrock is the Providence researcher for Kunsthalle Karlsruhe, which has what I would describe as a very sophisticated and diligent effort underway to restitute Nazi looted art. Now, granted, they didn't discover that our own painting had been looted by the Nazis. In fact, my first reply from P.M. Mueller, Tom, the director of the museum, was, what are you talking about? They declared bankruptcy. Uh, and I had to explain to her, well, you know, actually, <laughs> it isn't quite that simple. Um and part of that caused her to engage their provenance researcher and say, well, this is what they're telling me, and we're a responsible institution, and we want to keep this painting, but, you know, this is clearly not going to look good on paper otherwise. Why don't you go figure out what happened? And their provenance researcher did a lot of research and went to, you know, looked up some court court events and, and looked up a lot of primary materials. It's not... Absolutely impossible that it was a clean bankruptcy and this painting wasn't looted. So we need to restitute it. Uh, and I convinced the heirs to allow Kunstel Karlsruhe to buy it at market price as determined by a negotiation between ourselves and the museum. Uh, in effective exchange for her going and finding ears that would listen to us in the German government. 
And that's how, and, and because she did that, Mari occurred. And she wasn't the sole responsibility, not solely responsible for Mari happening. But unless she had gone and sought connections for on our behalf, Mari absolutely never would have occurred. And, and honestly, at a different level, because she was going to the Ministry of Culture at the national level, if I had not been in contact uh, with a former ambassador to Germany and had him deliver the two catalogs to her on a visit he was making to her, and the fact that he had been involved in the original uh, settlement of Nazi gold out of Switzerland, you know, they never would have talked to us either. There are still people who hate Jews. There are still people who deny the Holocaust. There are still, uh, you know, it comes in various shades and levels, but there's plenty of people in the museum system who, who, would, who are perfectly willing to take the position. Well, it doesn't matter if it was stolen from them. It's now public property and the public can see it, and it's more important for the public to see it than for it to be returned to the heirs of the person from whom it was stolen. And besides... There's more than 20 of those heirs now. And how can we possibly determine who's the right person to give it back to? And how do you divide the money? And what's it worth? And who's representing whom? And they haven't filled out the correct paperwork yet. And it, you get my draft. Well, yeah. And that's, too, why I was curious about Israeli museums, that their approach might be even more surprising if they know a piece is uh, looted and have resistance to returning it. Well, I'm, I'll be able to tell you that sometime in the next year. <laughs> I can give you a definitive response to that. I know that I have successfully restituted art that appeared in the Lepke catalog, because that's a really easy, straightforward story to tell. Um, you may The inventory from- seems pretty straightforward <laughs> to me as well. Yes, um, but there are large format works that were are demonstrated to have been elements of the Mossy collection that do not appear in the inventory or in the catalog, but they appear in the 1932 catalog. The, the interesting thing about the inventory versus the catalog is the inventory itself is limited to... Um, paintings and sculpture. The Lepke catalog includes furniture, rugs, silverware, banana bronzes, chandeliers, paintings, tapestries, mobilia, and it includes everything that was in the house. Um, so, but like I said, we explain to an Israeli museum that we understand how you might be mistaken that the Lepke catalog represents items of a forced sale as a reason for restitution. However, the expropriation, the actual theft of the family's property occurred on April 8th, 1933. And thus, the Lepke catalog is not a definitive list of such items well so just going back to israel for a moment the four p you said there were five pieces in israel and one you mentioned that you're still talking with them about depends on how you count 
do you count by institution or do you count by number of event, of uh, pieces of art? <laughs> uh, so the uh, I have restituted two pieces of art in Israel, and I know of I'm in conversation about two pieces for the museum, and I know of a third piece held by a private individual. So that's how you get the five. So I have had um, very cordial relations and successful interactions with members of the uh, Israeli Museum community, by the way. And I, and I honestly believe that what they suggested and what I responded to, that they were making an honest um, uh, an honest mistake in there and, and that they really do think of, and this is a, they think of the Lepke catalog as the definitive list because it's really kind of definitive. Problem is it isn't. <laughs> and that they honestly probably went and somebody diligently went through the Lepke catalog looking for these two tapestries and couldn't find them. And so they're like, well, they're not in the Lepke catalog. Uh, and you know we responded. Well, you're right. They're not, but but that is not that meaningful actually. <laughs> and we don't have any. You know, we've had very successful relations with them. And the most, you know, one of the more interesting aspects is just how shocked they are to find that nice. You know, that they are in possession of Nazi looted art that was donated to them by prominent Jewish individuals who have acquired it over the years. They were not expecting that. Uh, and, and I couldn't tell you how common it is or isn't, but I got the impression it's something pretty new. Uh, and that goes back to the sort of myth that the Mossy art collection was part of a bankruptcy. Nobody has ever thought twice over the years, you know, once you get out past the immediate post-war period and people, you know, the, the, the definitive history of the Mossy family says they went through bankruptcy, nobody ever worried about it. Um, and nobody, it didn't raise any kind of flags. So, you know, I'm, I don't know what their response is going to be to me telling them, well, gosh, it actually doesn't really matter that it's not an electric catalog. We're going to find out. I just don't know. Um, I will tell you the one funniest, one of the funniest restitution I've ever been involved in was with uh, the Berlinese Gallery in Berlin, um, which finally decided that, well, indeed, they would not admit that they possessed uh, a bust of Rudolf Mossi, which was Nazi looted art um, and was in, needed to be restituted under the Washington principles that they would indeed determine that they would reverse the loan of the bust that had, quote-unquote, been approved by an employee of the Mossy family after the war so that it could be displayed at the Berlinese Gallery. And because they were reversing that loan, they would return it to the Mossy heirs. And that took three years. 
It's very uh, interesting. Yeah. What's that? Very interesting. Well, it's difficult. So I'll tell you how that worked out. So I said, they said, no, it was loaned to us by the by uh, an employee of the family. And I wrote back and I said, you're out of your mind. And they said, no, no, no. Mr. It was it was on the desk in Mr. Schimpel Fennig's office. And it turned out that I had been reading the correspondence of Mr. Schimpel Fennig to George Mossy two or three months earlier. And I sent them the letter penned by the same Mr. Schimpelfennig, who they claimed had authorized the loan of this Rudolf Mossy bust to the Berlinish Gallery. That I sent them the letter from Mr. Schimpelfennig to George Mossy, wherein he states, we have had absolutely no success identifying anything from the Mossy collection anywhere in Germany or anywhere else in Europe. And they had a really hard time insisting that Mr. Schimpelfennig had authorized the loan of the bust that ostensibly had been in his office to their gallery after that. <laughs> Where did they even come up with that story? I have no idea. <laughs> I thought they might have given you some no, evidence that they were they relying just, on. They didn't even send me a letter or a form or anything. They just stated we were the loan was authorized by Mr. Schimpelfennig, assuming that I would have no idea who Mr. Schimpelfennig was. Uh, and yeah, but it still took a long time for them to come to grips with. Yeah, well, let's go ahead. Well, we won't admit it was stolen, but we'll reverse the loan, and you can have the bust back. Uh, and that bust is now sitting in the Rau Law Firm in Berlin on a shelf. But I, museums don't like to give things back. They like to talk about it. They like to say that we are all belong to this group of very moral and proper art institutions who always do the right thing. And they don't easily ever reach that conclusion, in my experience. And speaking of that, you had mentioned earlier the Dutch. And I was just curious if you'd had any uh, dealings with them over pieces. Not with the Dutch government. Mm -hmm. um, we have had some dealings with individual uh, galleries. Um, and that falls in the private settlement category, and uh, which is probably, I mean, I, I, I mean, this is a finger in the wind judgment. But my guess is that in terms of Nazi looted art, Privately settled events are probably far more numerous than publicly settled ones. And one of our great claims is that most of all, virtually the preponderance of art we've recovered is public. And the, and the deals, the settlements are public. And But in the case of uh, in the case of Holland or the Dutch, no, we've never actually had a public settlement there. Uh, and what I do know, though, is the course of history um, between the end of the of the World War II and now, how interested in restituting art the Dutch government is has waxed and waned. Uh, and it is now possible for Dutch museums who are presented with a claim for restitution to 
petition the government and say, this artwork is more important to be seen publicly than to be restituted. Yeah. Weighing the interests. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't agree with that phrase, weighing the interests, but um, I think that they are, uh, that that is a, uh, a quick and steep ice-covered slope on the moral plane regarding Nazi looted art. How's that? <laughs> well put. Well, Eric, thank you so much for sharing about what you and Mari have been working on. This has been extremely interesting, and, and uh, I'm sure it only scratches the surface of what you have been doing for the last many years. Yeah, I mean, it's what it is. It's a never-ending project. Uh, the amount of art just listed in the Lepkin Union catalog, which, as we've discovered, does not constitute the entire collection, could keep you busy for more than a decade. Uh, and and it really comes down to identify. You know, it, there's a huge component of luck wherein you have to identify a piece of art, find find out where it's located, have the good fortune for that location to be. Can usually a public institution is more amenable than a private one, but we have restituted art from private museums and private collections in Switzerland, Germany, and Austria. So it's not, it doesn't have to be a public institution, but it is more likely that a public institution will feel bound by the Washington Principles. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. Or you can email your comments to Stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.